When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Dr. Giles Yo Choose the Fat. I am he, Dr. Giles Yo, and I'm a geneticist at the University of Cambridge. I spend my days asking questions like, why do people come in different sizes? And why does your brain hate it when you lose weight? But I'm greedy when it comes to knowledge as well as food, and I want to learn even more about how our bodies and our minds interact with what we eat. Each week, I'll be inviting someone on to the podcast who knows a lot more than me about a certain specialist subject related to food and health. For example, the gut, fueling for exercise, or the impact of fad diets. We'll get together and, well, chew the fat. We're starting with a big one, the brain. I want to know how what we eat affects our brain and how our brain affects the way we eat. Helping me answer all the questions I have is chartered psychologist, Kimberly Wilson. Your brain is always looking for opportunities to eat. That's not someone being greedy. That's a brain looking out for an opportunity to ensure that there's enough energy on board to make sure that we don't die of an upcoming famine, which your brain is absolutely convinced is is on its way. Not only is Kimberly a psychologist working in private practice in central London, She's also governor of the Tavistock and Portman NHS Mental Health Trust. And, very crucially for me, as a fan of baked goods, she was a finalist on Series 4 of The Great British Bake Off. Now, to some extent, I feel like I lured Kimberly onto the podcast under false pretenses, spinning some yarn about wanting to chat about the brain. But really, I'm just a massive Great British Bake Off fanboy. So when we first connected, I waxed lyrical for ages about how my wife and I became that couple who started making sourdough during lockdown. My wife, I told Kimberly, has been particularly keen to science the whole baking process. And I think I was speaking Kimberly's language. The really beautiful thing is that it's, particularly with a sourdough as opposed to a quick bread or another yeasted bread, is that it's a it's a conversation. It's much more almost of a negotiation. You get to, you have to learn about it. You have to learn about the conditions in your kitchen. Is it humid? Is it cold? Is it warm? How the external temperature affects it, different types of flowers, even like a white flower from one shop or a different brand will respond differently into hydration. And so it's actually something that you can get quite consumed in. And again, in the middle of a lockdown, that I think a lot of people have found a lot of respite in that. Just just listening, what is clear to me is you speak about not only baking, but about food with love. 
Okay, and and in the in the same way, you don't just you you definitely don't seem as a eat to live. You seem more like a live to eat kind of person. Kind of like me. I think so. I think I probably am. I think I find I'm interested in food in lots of different levels. So kind of I started out I just call myself a hungry girl I like I like food I like the taste of food I like the feeling of eating but I also like the process and the story so I do like to know where foods come from and you know I follow lots of farmers on social media because I, I want to have that connection you know I'm pretty much landlocked I'm very urban but I want to have a connection with the food and to see the process and, and how it started and how it gets to my front door but I'm also really interested in how it affects us internally whether that is the biology or the psychology of it I just think there isn't another substance on the planet that engages all of our senses nothing sight taste sound nothing does it as completely as food and I, I just think there's so much to know about it and is this where, okay, it's so given that a lot of the senses, most of the senses, all of the, all senses. Of the senses are driven by north of the neck, as I, as I, <laughs> as I call it, so, so, so the brain. So tell us then about your interests, okay, at the intersection of the brain and food, which coincidentally, maybe not coincidentally, this is why we're talking to each other. That is exactly where my interest professionally and otherwise interacts brain and food. So tell us about your, your interest, about the interaction between the brain and food. There are almost kind of different islands that come together and kind of then emerge out of the water to be a, a big, slightly more cohesive story. And so one of the big landmarks was when I was working in prisons and I used to run the NHS primary care mental health service in at least what at the time was Europe's largest women's prison. It's now closed. Um but a lot of the work when you're working a in prisons but also working in women's prisons is understanding risk uh, risk of harm self-harm suicide and violence and that's because although at the time i think women made up something like six percent of the overall prison population in the uk some statistics were putting that women's self-harm was responsible for about 50% of the self-harm across the prison estate so women were self-harming at much higher rates than almost anyone, or at least it was being reported. You know, there are questions about reporting and whether men talk about it. But So I would have to sit in conversations and, and in meetings with the members of the security team and, and safety and custody and all of that, thinking about how do we keep these women safe? And apart from, you know, offering them therapy and medication and trying to get them engaged in meaningful work, at the time, so this was the kind of late 2000s, a big replication of an earlier prison study a British UK prison study was was published and it showed again so for the second time that improving nutrition in prisons through supplementation reduce acts of violence objective incidents of violence by about 30 percent now just to be clear when you mean supplementation uh vitamin supplementation supplementation with better food uh, uh you're talking actual supplements vitamins minerals and omega-3 fatty acids so against placebo giving, uh, and in the studies it's male prisoners, but giving them improved nutrition through supplements reduced violence. And so I'm sitting in prison, A, as someone who likes food and is interested in food privately and personally, but then also thinking about how we can, on a low budget, because there is no money in prison, particularly state-funded prisons, how do we keep people as safe as possible? And it just, I just thought this is the most obvious, easy 
cheap, accessible thing we can do? You know, can we speak to the in-house hospital service, the kind of the NHS that's within the prison? Or can we speak to the custody services and think about how we make this happen? Does it have to come through the kitchens? I don't know, but how can we make this happen? nobody was interested no one of course not <laughs> they're thinking for these and i and i think there is a lot of judgment here and, and that's what i want to point out a lot of judgment and a lot of stigma and a lot of fact that listen these people are in prison why should we care about what they're uh, about about what they eat and i'm sure that a lot of it is about mm. that absolutely and and I, you know i can understand it i can understand why it's difficult to have sympathy for someone who has harmed somebody else. But the reason we should care is that, A, these prisoners didn't, they weren't born criminals. They started as children. And as I talk about in a lot of my work, there is a clear pathway between malnutrition, undernutrition and hunger and externalizing behaviors, being kicked out of school and being more likely to go to prison. So that's that's a whole part of the story. But the other reason is because if someone is safer in prison, they are safer out of prison. And so people are going to be released. And what you want, ideally, is that people have had experience in prison where they have been rehabilitated, where they you know, feel less angry, less violent, feel more able psychologically, cognitively to engage in society and therefore want to do that. If you kind of just lock the door and throw away the key, that person has no investment in reintegrating into society. So it's, you know, it's not just about, oh, we can punish them in isolation somewhere over there. At some point, people are coming out of prison. And at that point, we start to have to then care about how they feel about being back in society and how they've been treated. Which brings me on, actually, to let's discuss, therefore, how food influences the brain. Now, my understanding, okay, of food and the brain is very much more molecular. Okay, so in other words, I understand that the brain controls and influences feeding behavior, and it does this by sensing peripheral nutritional cues, so very molecular about how much glucose, how much fatty acids, that kind of thing. And your brain, what are your energy stores? Your brain then decides, well, how hungry I am, how much do you need to eat and do that? So that, that's what I study. Okay, so, so, so that's how I go. But how does food influence the brain beyond fuel? Because I think about it as fuel, and that it is. But how does food influence the brain beyond it just being a calorie, beyond mm. just being fuel? So profoundly. So I always start from the position that your brain is made of food. And, you know, of course, all of us is made of food. <laughs> you know, we all started out as the bits of digested amino acids and fats from whatever our mothers were eating uh, when they were pregnant with us. Um, but people often forget that. We kind of forget that we're made of bits of chicken and salad and, and all sorts. It's like in the Matrix, <laughs> where they plumb everything back in and they kind of feed it back in yourself again. That's actually, yes, you're right. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> and in particular, when we're thinking about the brain, are essential fatty acids, which are the building blocks of the outer membrane of every single one of your brain cells. So these long chain omega-3 fatty acids, which are in their highest concentrations in the brain. And the analogy I use is of a house. So about 30% of the membrane is omega-3 fatty acids, DHA. And so if you were building a house and every third brick had been removed, then sure, your house would kind of look house-like, it'd be house-shaped. But whenever there was a rainstorm or a hurricane or high winds, that structure would be much more vulnerable. It wouldn't be as resilient as a house where all the bricks were present and correct. 
And so deficiencies, we know that deficiencies in these essential fatty acids, both in utero, in development and in the later stages of life, lead to structural vulnerabilities in the brain. And it also impairs how your neurotransmitters communicate because these essential fats are needed so that the receptors in the nerve cells are the right shape to connect with to connect and actually accept the electrical signals and 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 the new right okay so signaling which is what your brain does doesn't happen very well if you're not getting enough of these fats that's always where i start but then the other piece of the puzzle that people tend to completely either ignore or just don't know about when we're thinking about psychology you know people often say to me how do i increase my serotonin or you know people we have the highest rates of uh, serotonin ssri prescriptions ever you know more people are on antidepressants than ever before so people are aware that you know serotonin has something to do with good mood but people don't realize that serotonin is made from nutrients and actually nutrients are the cofactors. You know, they are the the workers in the factory that put all of the pieces of it together. So if you don't have sufficient nutrients, you're not even getting proper synthesis of these neurotransmitters that we know are important for, for feeling good, for functioning, focusing, goal-directed behaviour, all of that stuff. It, there's so much that comes down to nutrition and the brain. There is so much. And and I guess a, a big problem is people think, well, you still have a brain, everything. But your house analogy is fabulous, which means that, yes, of course, there's a brain there, but you're revealing... I'm, I'm stealing this, by the way. Where's my notebook? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm writing this down. No, this is, that, is a, that is a fabulous way of, of actually um, going about it. And... Do you think there is a difference between delivering some of these essential nutrients as supplements, omega-3, as opposed to, say, eating fish? I understand. Immediately, I said that the first thing I thought was cost. But (laughs) but, but in terms of, I guess, two things, okay? (laughs) Leaving aside cost, is there a difference in how your brain will receive these nutrients by how you actually eat them? Yes, uh, we certainly think so. So... With, if we use fish as an example, we know, yes, that you get omega-3 fatty acids from fish, but you also get B12, you also get other proteins, you also get a, maybe a group of, of nutrients that we haven't even identified yet. And there are also other proteins in fish that are supportive, protective against things like Alzheimer's disease. So as the whole food, you're getting a lot of things that we you'd, you wouldn't bargain for in a supplement. And the second part of that is that nutrients work synergistically you know that they they feed back on each other they help to digest and and break up and and resynthesize each other and it's just difficult to replicate that outside of eating whole foods so ideally whole foods but i think we also need to be practical if we're not going to improve childhood nutrition or prison nutrition by you know sending everybody home to cook meals from scratch we need to have a practical solution in the meantime so, okay, you, you mentioned childhood nutrition, um, mm. um, and this is interesting because obviously when you were working with the prisons, these were largely adult women, and so therefore you were dealing with the brains of developed adult women. Now we take the same thing, and not in prison, but in schools, okay? And obviously we've seen that COVID has exacerbated food insecurities, particularly in kids. You have the whole Marcus Rashford free school meals. So, uh, what are your thoughts, therefore, on, you know, making sure, you know, that kids 
because these are brains are still growing. Their houses are still being built. You know, how do we then try and improve nutrition in, in, in kids cheaply once again? Because once again, in primary schools, mm-hmm. the states, there's no money. Mm. It's an absolute priority. And I talk a lot about mental health prevention because it's only in the realm of mental health where we wait for something to go wrong first right everywhere else in health it's about prevention don't smoke not because you've already got cancer but so that you don't get cancer brush your teeth not because you've already got gum disease but so that you don't get gum disease but with mental health it's well we'll get to you once you've got depression or once you're you have a a panic attack or once you know you're having a, a an episode of psychosis or something you know so we always wait and there's no scientific or medical reason to do that it's not as if we can't prevent or reduce the risk of certain mental health conditions. We just don't think about the brain in the same way that we think about the body and and physical illness. So if we're thinking about children, and again, thinking about these, you know, maybe adult criminals or just adult people who have mental health concerns, we need to look further down earlier in the pathway. And that pathway, I say, starts with building resilience into the system, building as strong a house as possible. And that means ensuring that children have adequate nutrition. And that means children not being hungry, but also having the full complement of nutrients that their brains and bodies need. They're, they're rapidly developing brains and bodies. We know also, and it's really interesting that there's a parallel in the percentage, but children who are given breakfast in those schools, so I was talking to Carmel McConnell, who runs Magic Breakfast, the, the charity that gives out um, healthy breakfast to children in deprived areas. Children in her schools that have breakfast, there's a 30% reduction in fights in first play compared to the children who don't have breakfast. And when we're thinking about the way that children's behaviour can lead to them being labelled, so if little Timmy is always fighting at playtime. He's in trouble. This is a bit trouble he's there, boy. Trouble, it's trouble. You know, and, and or he's fidgety or agitated or acting out in class. That gets labelled as his behaviour. It gets labelled as a kind of failing or inadequacy in him rather than maybe he's hungry or maybe, you know, he's got low blood sugar and he needs a snack. And that's the kind of thing that can stick, you know. Oh, I'm not going to give him as much attention. Just ignore him, children. He's not very, you know. And actually... There's a huge group of children that are suffering simply because they're hungry. And that, in a wealthy democracy like ours, I think is an absolute scandal. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So, so we've talked about how food influences the brain. Let's go the other way around, okay? How does brain influence the food? And so here, I, j- I just give you my perspective so you kind of know where, where, where I'm coming from here. And so I'm a geneticist, and so I study body weight. Um, but now we know that the genetics of body weight, by its very definition, is the genetics of how our brain influences our food intake. And so that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in how the brain actually influences why we eat, um, what we like, and, and how much we're likely to eat, how hungry we feel, okay, and how drawn. So from your perspective, okay, how does the brain influence what we eat? Okay, this is one of the things that I, I think people really need to understand. It's not as simple as, well, I just make a conscious decision about what I'm eating, and how much I'm eating, and it's all about willpower. Your body and your brain are much older and much smarter than you are, is what I say, right? Your body has been evolving over hundreds of thousands of years to ensure that you don't die and also that you have enough energy on board to reproduce. That's all your body is is essentially interested in. And part of that developmental history, right, is about surviving famine. And so your brain is always looking for opportunities to eat. And there are gonna be a group of people, for example, who are particularly sensitive to food cues. Right. So if there's cupcakes in the office or a billboard poster of of a burger or something, there are going to be a group of brains that are particularly drawn to it and that they will be much more likely to then want to eat, to to follow that up with eating behavior. That's not someone being greedy. That's a brain looking out for an opportunity to ensure that there's enough energy on board to make sure that we don't die of an upcoming famine, which your brain is absolutely convinced is is on its way. Um, The other part of that, or another part of that, is that so much of our eating isn't even biological, it's psychosocial. So a lot of what we do is to eat to time. You know, we have have a meal called Elevenses, right? (laughs) That's right, there's a time in front of it, yeah. yeah. You know, and that's like, okay, well, it's Elevenses, that must mean it's a time to eat. I don't know if I'm particularly hungry, but there's food there, so I'm, I'm going to eat. Someone brings in something to share in the office and it feels impolite to say no, so so we eat special occasions, holidays. Why do we have cake, particularly on on birthdays or champagne at celebrations? Because these foods, these foodstuffs are associated with social and cultural events. And we're social cultural animals. So we partake in those rituals and in those customs. You know, there's so much. (laughs) There is so much. There is so much. And and what is really interesting, so so I studied, like I said, the brain food intake, but particularly obesity. So overnutrition, but in a bad way. And whenever I say I study it, and particularly when I say I study it from a genetics uh, point of view, I'm always accused of of giving people an excuse. You said, look, you know, you're, you're, you're giving people an excuse because all that person is, that eating behavior, that that body weight look at look at her him it's a bad habit it's a bad choice they the people think that feeding behavior is a choice and my argument is always that 
they may be some choice to it, but actually a huge amount of biological and non-biological influences to why someone will pick up a piece of pizza and eat yeah. it. Yeah. So whether that's simply perhaps that that person has higher circulating levels of ghrelin, they were just born a bit hungrier than everybody else. How well their bodies are at partitioning calories. You know, women do it better than men. We will store energy much more as fat much more quickly and easily than men do. How sensitive you are to food cues, your emotional history of food. If you grew up in an environment where food was really the main way that affection was shown, then that's going to be an automatic association that you make with feeling good, with feeling loved, with feeling taken care of. So that's going to feed into the way that you eat as well. And on the flip side, sometimes eating can be an act of rebellion. You know, I often work with people who, let's say their parents have put them on a a diet at 12, or they've had constant criticism as children about their weight and their body shape. And often if they haven't felt able to express their anger, their disappointment, their rage at the injustice of being treated like this, they internalize it by being defiant through their eating behavior. So there's so much complexity to our relationships with food and how and why we eat. And it's just anyone who says, oh, you're just not trying hard enough or it's just about willpower is really showing themselves up as knowing very little about the social psycho biological influences on eating and feeding. So so just just a quick question then, um, um, actually, because I think I might be asking an expert. So we know that stress, stress hormone is cortisol. Um, why do you think, okay, some people respond to stress by eating? I happen to be a stress eater. I happen to back into a bowl of noodles. <laughs> don't, don't, don't at me. Um, and some people respond to exactly that same hormone, mm-hmm. cortisol, by stopping to eat. That's my wife. Okay, so the moment she's stressed, she stops eating. Now, it's the same hormone, but yet diametric opposites. Some people eat when they're stressed. Some people don't eat when they're stressed. And biologically, I don't know the mechanistic reason. From a psychological perspective, do you have any uh, answers or thoughts about why this might be the case? Yeah, so there does seem to be a a kind of population distribution in whether you're more likely to stress eat or whether you're less likely to stress eat. Not entirely sure why that is. It might be that for some people, stress does the classic thing where it shuts down your digestion and you can't even think about eating. And therefore, you kind of just become a bit of an anxious bundle. But what we do know, for example, about the foods that people crave when they're stressed, they tend to be carbohydrate-rich foods. Noodles, bowl of noodles. <laughs> and and that's because, you know, when we think about cortisol, which, uh, glucocortisol, is that the stress system is modulated. It's turned off by glucose. It's turned off by carbohydrates. So quite often for people who stress eat, it's actually to some extent, an adaptation to managing stress is that your body saying, look, I need something to turn this off with. Actually, the thing that physiologically works is is carbohydrates. Um, Part of that is also, again, about how you've learned to manage stress. So social uh, family history about dealing with stress. But there's also an interaction of the types of foods that are available when you're experiencing stress and the type of stress. So the type of stress that we like the least or that our brains find most difficult to deal with is uncontrollable stress, right? So if I say to you, look, Giles, you've got a new book coming up and you've got a deadline to hit. So you need to get that manuscript in 
in the next whatever, then you can say, fine, I've got a deadline. I've done this before. I know what to do. It's stressful, but it's the controllable stress. You can handle it. With say something like the pandemic, it's an uncontrollable stressor. It's just descended from nowhere. It's out of our hands. We don't know how to manage it. We've never been in this situation before. We don't know how long it's going to go on for. We don't know whether we've got, therefore, the resources to cope with it. Uncontrollable stress is very, very, very difficult for the brain to tolerate. And it's uncontrollable stress in the context of high reward foods. So that combination of sugars and fats, which it tends to be associated with overconsumption. I did that. There was somebody asked me this. I've done literally a story on my Instagram today. Someone was saying, is there any evidence that you eat more when you're working hard, like when you're thinking hard or... And actually there is, it's, it's small, it's the evidence, the literature is small, but we do tend to eat more when we've been thinking hard. And that's the other part of, of this information. It's about letting people, because people feel so guilty about eating and they feel so guilty. Oh, I shouldn't have had that. It didn't, you know, <laughs> one, somebody came to me and she said, oh, it was Easter. She went, oh, I had five hot cross buns. And I said, okay so like what does it mean that you ate those five hot cross buns she said well I was really stressed and and I'm much more interested in the stress than condemning the consumption of the hot cross buns let's deal with the stress and how you manage that and recognize it in advance than just saying oh you're terrible make sure that never happens again thank you for that answer that was (laughs) (laughs) that was very educational thank you I didn't mean to sound surprised that wasn't meant as a surprise because I so so look I've got a um Let's go back to childhood malnutrition. Okay, but now we're going to use malnutrition in its broadest sense. So the UNICEF report for childhood malnutrition, I think, was came out in 2019, I remember. And in it, and I won't get the quote exactly right, but in it, it said something like, why are so many children uh, not getting enough of what they need, but so many other children getting too much of what they don't need? Okay, which I think encapsulates... You know, malnutrition from not having enough food to having too much of the wrong t- of, of the wrong type of food. So I guess from a policy making decision, what what would you tell policymakers? So I think it starts with well, it starts with maternal nutrition and it starts with maternal mental health, ensuring that we give mothers the resources they need in order to feel that they are properly taken care of and therefore that they have the space, time, resources thinking space in order to to take care of their children we need to understand also is that whilst the brain maintains plasticity capability throughout life your flavor and and kind of palate preferences start to be set in utero so it does matter what the mother's eating and it certainly does matter what she starts to feed the child after weaning um and you know mother as a kind of shorthand for a primary caregiver um so it matters what foods are made available early in life because that will set preferences and it's difficult to switch you know as an adult i i, I decided that I, I should try to like marmite and it took a while to get me to try to like marmite what, what, um, i'm sorry 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 now we're gonna take a pause here why did i love marmite <laughs> but why would you try and make yourself like marmite if you don't like it because just because it's such because I'm such a nerd. It's such a good source of B vitamins. Um, <laughs> okay, and it kind of feels like 
something that is lots of chefs use it in terms of like increasing umami in certain yeah. foods, especially if you don't want to add bacon or or parmesan or anything like that. So I thought, you know, be a grown up, get on board, start to like marmite, and you can, right? You can habituate yourself to to liking certain foods with enough exposure, but. My point. Your point. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Harder. Hit me your point. It's harder for children, and so you can't take a child who's been perhaps drinking lots of fizzy drinks and expect them to then switch to water without any difficulty. So it matters what you start feeding ch- children early in life and what's available to them and what their food cues are in their environments. So if they're surrounded by advertisements for high reward foods and we call them high reward because that's what they do in the brain you know the front part of a child's brain which is a part that helps them to delay gratification and make quote-unquote good choices isn't fully developed until they're 25 so you can't just tell them it's about making the environment conducive to brain healthy choices and so it's going to take the collaboration of a lot of invested people and not simply you know short sharp shock cheaper responses if i turned around the question at me as policy wise you know what what would i try and do i think this is not i'm not saying it's easy but because of the way we are as human beings and the way our brain works which is to find the most efficient way to do something because that's how we've survived we we need to make the healthy choice the easier the cheaper the more convenient choice and and the moment you do that then a you make things more equitable because people will then go for the cheapest option and it's healthy. Um, you do that. And I think we're some way to trying to fix some, certainly obesity, but malnutrition possibly as well. Yeah, I think your, your, your brain will always default to the easiest option. And it's, yeah, absolutely about how do we, whether it's about using behavioral nudges or education or taxing or subsidies. I, I mean, fruit and vegetables should be subsidized. <laughs> like that's just straightforward. Um, to make these things much more accessible so that, you know, from my perspective, my interest is, is about brain health, you know, that we have a nation of well-nourished brains because otherwise what we're dealing with and what we're already starting to see is a pandemic of mental illness, you know. These are brains under siege and they don't have the structural kind of integrity to start with and they're much, much more vulnerable. So I guess as a last question, as 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 a as a final question, if you had now once again, this is a difficult question. <laughs> briefly, <laughs> well, how, how would you how would you advise people, therefore, to eat, or what would you advise people to eat in order to try and improve, maintain brain health? Okay, so you know, notwithstanding understanding people's individual circumstances their abilities, whether they've got kitchen implements and stuff and all of that sort of stuff. What we're thinking about really, and it's 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 not news, it's, you know, it's not groundbreaking, is really minimally processed whole foods. In terms of specific foods, oily fish, leafy greens, berries, whole grains, nuts and beans. So high fibre, low in kind of free and added sugars, lots of color leafy greens in particular are really important and those essential fats which are the structural building blocks of your brain and i always think about adding things in like if you can focus on adding in those nutrient rich foods then your brain's going to be able to tolerate the odd chocolate bar and the you know it's not about being extreme it's not about kind of saying you can never eat these foods again i mean 
I have freezer cake. You know, <laughs> there is cake in my freezer at all times. Um, but it's about ensuring that from the outset, your brain isn't working harder just to do the basics than it needs to. Kimberly, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so, so much for having me. Well, if you liked what you've heard, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. I'll be back here every week with more nerdy chat and the odd self-incriminating story too, if you're lucky. And subscribing is the way to make sure the next episode lands handily on your device as soon as it's available. Your brain doesn't have to do any work at all. More headspace for you to think about what you're going to cook up with your leafy greens. If you're looking for more brain food, you can read Kimberly's fabulous book, How to Build a Healthy Brain. And while you're at the bookstore, you can grab mine too in hard copy or audiobook form. It's called Why Calories Don't Count. You can find the links in the show notes. Next time, I Chew the Fat with fellow geneticist Adam Rutherford. Everyone can digest lactose in breast milk when they're born, but by the time you're about four or five, in most people throughout most of history, that gene becomes inactive and the process stops and you can't drink milk after that without suffering tummy troubles. For now, thanks so much to Kimberly Wilson for literally blowing my mind and to my producer Anushka Tate for Orion Publishing Limited and the biggest thank you goes to you for listening. I'll catch you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.